Hello all, Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. To kick this one off, I'm going to go back to the one I did last week, which was comparing the three major types of tarantula enclosures, the acrylic, the glass, and the, you know, sterilite bin type plastic enclosures. And Melissa Fujimoto pointed out that I did miss something when I went through and it stunk because I went back through my notes and I completely missed the talking point on it. But she said, wonderful podcast, Tom. As much as I love acrylic, I have a bit of a concern for the warping you mentioned. Now, we did mention the warping part. I've been very fortunate in that my acrylics have never warped to a point where it's really ruin the functionality, is that even a word, of the enclosure or made, you know, a a possible hole for escape. I have seen instances where people have had acrylic where they, especially when they've used thinner acrylic to build the enclosures where a corner of a door or something is warped to a point where it could permit escape. So although I've been very fortunate in that respect and I have both Jamie's enclosures, Lorex's enclosures, I've gotten a, a little bit of warping but nothing major at all. That's obviously an issue people need to be aware of. It has compromised the integrity of some enclosures that people have purchased that I've been privy to that they've emailed me and said, listen, I had to like duct tape the corner of this one down because it was warping so badly. But those two companies that I speak of seem to do a pretty good job of it. But anyway, Melissa continues. Uh, the next biggest issue for me, however, is the intense squeaking of the hinges. It's ear piercing. I've tried using a bit of silicone lubricant, and that helps, but popping the rod out can be tricky. Sometimes the rod pops out in their own, too. I thought I should also mention that Lorex offers drilled holes now instead of the chewable mesh vents. You just have to drop them the note about it. So to your first point, Melissa, I'm staring right at my notes for last week where I did this because I did try to put down some notes so I wouldn't lose my talking points, but I forgot to mention the squeaking. Yes, uh, a couple of mine squeaked very, very badly. I had somebody uh, on one of my videos basically complain that I killed their ears because they were listening with earphones, and I opened up my M. Balfouri enclosure, and that ear-piercing shriek it emits is just... It's rough. Now, the good news is it doesn't seem to affect the tarantulas. The bad news is it's really irritating. And yes, I have a couple like that. I also have some that I buy from Amazon that I use that are basically acrylic storage boxes and a couple of those, especially when you get them filled with dirt and it kind of warps the dimensions of the enclosure a bit, they squeak really badly. So yeah, that is that absolutely is something for people to consider. I haven't had much luck uh, getting rid of the squeak. I just kind of live with it, but I know some people it really grates on their nerves like nails on chalkboard. So yes, Melissa, awesome point. And the Lorex, I thought I mentioned the Lorex part. I'm sorry about that if I left that one out. My last enclosure I bought for them was actually my M. Balfouri communal. That was supposed to come with vents, and I did have them drill. So they will drill the holes. It will cost you a little bit more, but it's definitely worth it. and makes the cages more appropriate for tarantulas because those wire vents, again, I have a picture somewhere of the one that my... LP chewed right through. If that cage wasn't very in very close proximity of another cage, she probably could have crawled right out and escaped. So not a good deal. So something people need to be aware of. So again, thanks everyone that commented on that one. Melissa, nice to hear from you. A uh, little known fact, Melissa, a couple of years ago, was the one that introduced me to Fear Not Tarantulas. I had not ordered from, I had actually seen something from them years ago and thought I had Added, I, I basically bookmarked the site to come back to it because I had stumbled upon a sale they were having. And it was late at night and Billy was waiting for me to go to bed and didn't want to hang downstairs doing spider stuff. So I thought I bookmarked it and I didn't and I lost it and I couldn't find it. And then, you know, fast forward a year or so, Melissa was talking about them and singing their praises and that's the first time I gave them a shot. So the huge, huge deal there, obviously. I've ordered from Tiny many times, love, fear not. So, Melissa, again, great to hear from you. Hope all is well. And actually, continuing with Melissa, when I put out my call for questions 
a few weeks back now. I'm still waiting through them, and I think I still have plenty to go. So you guys have given me plenty of material, and I really appreciate that. I've got some things of my own i got to cover somewhere in between, but uh, we're definitely going to plow through all of these questions because they're all great ones. But Melissa brought up uh, a fact about water, and uh, Melissa, just to quote you, I know through previous experience and through having a parrot previous to owning tarantulas, but the dangers of using chemicals like cleaning solutions, bleach, scented candles, and aerosol sprays within the vicinity of tarantulas. Also, that additives in city water can possibly cause DKS. So options like bottled spring water, filtered water, or distilled water being better options. This was from my own personal experience in particular. I had my entire collection experience DKS for two weeks. I went through all possible coincidental factors and narrowed it down to the tap water being used. As soon as I began using filtered water, all symptoms went away. So Melissa brings up some excellent points here and, and points that I don't think some people think about. I have well water, and I'll tell you the biggest issue I have with my well water is we kind of have the hard lime deposits you can get. So, for example, when I use my humidifier during the wintertime, it leaves like a white chalky film all over everything. So I have a lot of bottled water on hand and spring water. But for people that use city water, that's an important thing to consider. I know where the town I used to live in, they added fluoride to it. I don't think there have been studies to what fluoride can do to tarantulas or spiders or arachnids. So that is something I wouldn't want to use. So I do think that if you're using city water, especially if you know that they add things to it, you want to be careful with that. That is something definitely to consider. These animals seem to be particularly hardy, but again, we I, I talk ad nauseum about the fact that they're difficult to diagnose sicknesses in them and illnesses, and when something goes wrong, we often have to go through like a, a checklist of all the different things it could possibly be, and a lot of times, we're left with just no answers, and so when you do something like this, and I'm, Melissa, I've been there before when I had the mass die-off last year when I had a, lost a bunch of animals due to the substrate contamination, one of the things that came to mind actually was water, and that's when we switched to bottled water water for a bit on some of them. I was trying to do an experiment because I have such a huge collection and usually in the winter time we store our, you know, extra juices and sodas and stuff. We can't store them in the garage anymore. We have to bring them into the kitchen because the garage freezes. So I had like bottle, uh, gallon jugs of water everywhere. I think Billy was getting kind of irritated with me. But for in my case, it didn't turn out to be the water. It was definitely the substrate, but that was something I considered. So I do think you bring up an amazing point there that we were not sure what types of things out there can negatively impact their health. I'm glad to hear that if you got the DKS symptoms and a lot of your tarantulas that they pulled out of it because that's not always the case. I know the two instances that I've experienced it, it was they were very quickly dead. They both proved fatal before I could figure out what was going on or what could have caused it. So that's good. But I do think that is a great point about using bottled water that when in doubt, it's the safest way to go. You can also boil it, but in, in smaller collections, it's obviously much easier to use the bottled water because you know having a couple gallons of around is no big deal. I will tell you the other day I used this, I think it's a liter bottle where I used to make it rain on my tarantula cages when I'm feeding them and, and moistening the substrate and I must have filled that thing 10 times. So it, it's it might not be convenient for a lot of people but it is something to think about especially if you have some health issues that the water, we never know what's in the water. Every once in a while, you know, one of the local schools around here will turn the water off and tell kids they have to drink bottled water because there'll be bacteria in the water or something in the water that's, you know, not conducive to human drinking and that could happen anywhere so that's definitely something to think about and to go back to the cleaners a lot of people um, ask me what I use to clean my enclosures I usually use uh, white vinegar and warm water I if I use a sponge it's one that I've rinsed out thoroughly because I don't know if you guys have noticed but a lot of the cheap sponges you buy seem to have like the detergent in them or something they're like oily 
more often than not, I use like an old, I have a cotton terry cloth, washcloth or something. I use to clean them out, and that's it. I don't use any harsh chemicals. I don't use Windex. I don't use bleach. I don't use anything that could leave a residual. Uh, bleach fumes have proven to be fatal to them. So again, if if you use bleach and you clean it really, really well and and you know rinse it out really well, dry it out, it shouldn't be a problem. I just try not to get any of those harmful chemicals around my tarantulas. If I have a cage, every once in a while, like if something died, when I had the die offs and everybody was dying. I had a couple of them die in cages that I just basically took the enclosures and threw them right in the recycle bin. I didn't know what was killing them. I didn't know what was in the substrate, so I just tossed them. Um, I did have a couple of the more expensive ones, though, that I held on to, and those I did clean out. I bleached them. I basically then went through and cleaned them with white vinegar mixed with hot water, cleaned them completely out, rinsed them really well, and used them again. But I will say just a tip that I can give is that if you have something that dies unexpectedly, I throw the cork bark out. I throw the substrate out. If it's a cheap water dish, like if it isn't one of my ceramic ones that I can easily boil and clean and disinfect, I throw that out as well. I don't play around. So that's something to think about also if you have a sick tea. So thank you, Melissa, the two great responses there that have obviously given me a lot to talk about. And now we have to go on to the one I'm going to try to tackle today, which I'm going to preface this by saying I've been giving it thought for three weeks, and I don't know that I really have an answer, but we're going to cover it anyway because I think it's an interesting topic. So let's move on. This one comes from Chris Frenetti, or Chris Frenetti, I believe it's Chris Frenetti. Please correct me. I I have this thing about mispronouncing names. I feel absolutely awful, but hopefully I got it. Hey, Tom, in my experience, there seems to be a stigma attached to having more than, say, three tarantulas in one's collection. It's no doubt frowned upon by those outside the hobby. Here's my question. What would be the best rationalization or explanation for why the majority of tarantula keepers can justify having upwards of 150 T's or more in their collection? How can we confidently explain to our colleagues, family, and friends that moderation means something drastically different in this hobby? Or perhaps, is there such thing as hoarding teas irresponsibly? That is an absolutely amazing question, one that I've kind of wrestled with. And you can hear a click here because I'm going to expand my screen completely so I can see my whole thing here. Um, Chris, this is a tough one because I've honestly been mulling this over for three days and I still struggle to explain it. And I've been doing this for a while and talk about it all the time. Now, let's get one thing. Let's start with the bad part first. Is there such thing as tarantula hoarding? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's what the hoarding aspect of it is what kind of gets us in trouble sometimes and makes people look at us funny. I have a running joke to my better friends at work that know about the, know how deep I am in a hobby, know about the Tom's Big Spider stuff because I don't go promoting it. Most people would think I was a nut job for it. I'm already the weird guy that listens to metal first thing in the morning there. So we don't, I got enough working against me that I don't go around telling people that I do spider videos and whatnot. But they know about it and they also know that Billy and I happen to love the show Hoarders. So the running joke has been for years that anytime I'm talking about my spiders, they go onto the Hoarders website and pretend like they're going to shoot out an email and try to get me on the show. And as much as they're joking, and I think I've been able to explain to them because it's not an easy thing to explain just in the fly where you're standing around the water cooler. Oh, yeah, this guy over here has 150 tarantulas. Why don't you explain? that one, John. It's a tough one to cover because most people, A, and and we have to start at this, most people don't understand why we would even want to have one. So then when you tell them that you have 150 creatures that most people can't stand, they loathe, that they fear, then things get really weird. 
So starting with the negative aspect of it, can you hoard tarantulas? Absolutely. Yes, of course, you can hoard anything. And I think those of us who get into collecting tarantulas probably have that collector's gene in us. We start off with noble enough purposes. You know, we get into the hobby, we get a couple, we're like, these are gorgeous. We all have gone through the stage where you go, I'm going to end up having a couple of these things. Next thing you know, the couple turns into 10, and then 10 turns into 30 or 40 or 50, and next thing you know, you're sitting on 150. I had somebody contact me the other day who said they currently have 400 and then started rattling off the deaths that they had had lately and was wondering what could have been happening to them. So I do think that we we always, those of us who collect tarantulas and get in, we'll say even past 50. We'll, we'll, cut it, we'll cut it off at 50, but this is really, we could argue this all day long. We'll just do 50 people. Those of us who get beyond the 50 mark, depending on how much room we have, are getting close to that hoarded territory or could become hoarders of tarantulas because of the fact that what ends up happening is you start off with one or two, you're obsessing over them. And I think this is why a lot of us move into getting more of them. You get one or two, they go into primo, you start freaking out, you want to dig them up. And then what ends up happening is nobody's eating. You have nothing to feed. When you get a pet, you want to interact with it. And when a tarantula is in primo and is burrowed, there's really nothing you can do but stare at a container of dirt. So I think a lot of us go out and this is what happened with me. And so, you know, I'll pick up a couple more, so I'll have something to play with. And then it just, you keep getting more and more and you find more and more. And then we get on these, you know, arachnoboards, we get on the Facebook groups and we see somebody else has one. It's like, my God, that spider's stunning. I need to have that one too. A lot of us go from having just a few that we obsess over, probably to a fall, to a point where we're, we're over caring for them, to suddenly you have a whole room full of them. And that can be uh, a dangerous predicament where suddenly you realize what you used to do. You know, I know when I used to feed my tarantulas, uh, they start off the majority with slings and I'd feed them all at least two or three times a week. I'd break them, take all the enclosures down and get in there with a flashlight, check them out, add some water, feed them, feed them if they were eating. And then that turned into, all right, well, once a week. And then sometimes you're realizing every once in a while that it would go two weeks before you checked on something. And I know I wrestled with this myself. I think a little ways back I did a podcast on basically how to manage large collections and did touch upon the hoarding aspect of it where once you realize you're not able to keep up with it, once you find yourself putting it off because there's so much to do, which means you're not checking your spiders as often as you should – then you got to start considering you have too many. You're approaching hoarding territory. A collection should be well maintained. It shouldn't be stressful for the most part. I mean, this is, these most of us get into this hobby to alleviate stress. So if you're starting to stress over them, that's a huge problem. Especially if you're stressing over the fact that you know, oh my gosh, I have so many things to feed. And if you're not able to give the level of care that they should get, then you're starting to approach hoarding territory. So I think that we always joke when we watch hoarders because I've collected stuff my entire life, everything from, oh my God, huge comic book collection, garbage pail kids, uh, baseball cards, uh, Transformer collection. I've, I've always had that collector gene in me, for lack of a better term. But with transformers or, or CDs even or something like that, when you when you get sick or you get too many of them, it's easy to just throw them in boxes and put them away. When you get into animals, that's a totally different ballgame. Your collection can very rapidly turn into a hoard. So I think the first thing 
point we need to consider is when you're explaining to people how many you keep, you need to talk about the fact that they are incredibly low maintenance. That's one thing people don't seem to understand. That's one thing a lot of people getting into the hobby, it takes a while to get the hang of. I know it was the same for me. We're used to animals that you have to care for daily, that need you know fresh water daily, need to be fed daily, sometimes more than once a day. And that's a difficult transition for us to make. And it's difficult for people out there at large that don't understand these animals to recognize. Second, they have to realize that these aren't animals that need to be in gigantic enclosures. Can they be in gigantic enclosures? Absolutely. And I think that's where some people within our own hobby that, you know, the people that choose to keep a smaller collection but really do the cages up really nicely, they look at us sometimes, those of us who have a super collection, as like, what is the point of keeping all those animals in those little boxes? So we even have some contention amongst ourselves as hobbyists on this one. But for people outside, they need to recognize that these guys do really well in smaller enclosures. That doesn't mean you stick a five-inch spider in a container that has six-inch you know circumference. That just doesn't make any sense. You want to give them some room, but they should have a burrow. They should feel secure or a hide or something to climb on, an area to you know feel secure in. But you don't need to go to the moon and have a giant 50-gallon aquarium. I actually just got approached by somebody who said they had a giant 50-gallon aquarium and they were going to do a communal of LPs in it. And that's for a future episode. Actually, we're not even going to touch that. That was a fun email trying to explain the difference between tarantulas that can be kept in communals and ones that can't. And uh, that would have been a nightmare. But anyway, I think we need to explain to them the fact they don't keep as much. They don't require as much space. And then I like to bring up, which this, this one helps me a lot. The fish hobby and fish and people that keep, you know, aquariums and whatnot. That's a good one to kind of point them to. I I often use that when we talk about why I don't hold them. I say they're kind of like if you keep aquarium fish, you don't reach into the tank, pull out the fish and hold it and pet it. It's not appropriate. And a lot of us that don't choose the handle or people that don't choose the handle will often point to that analogy. And again, those of you out there at handle, I'm not getting on your case. I'm just using what people will say when people ask you, why don't you handle your tarantulas? Because there are those of us that kind of get attacked by people like, what is the point of keeping an animal if you're not going to hold it? And then we can use the aquarium fish type analogy. And I think it also works when explaining why we keep so many. If somebody comes and goes, man, I have a room full of fish tanks. I have, you know, I, I once had a buddy that had like 20 fish tanks, all different setups, fresh water, salt water. He had some crustaceans in there, all kinds of things. People would come over his house and be oh, man, this is beautiful. This is amazing. Nobody would question the fact that this guy had hundreds of fish at any given time. That was considered normal. However, you flip that and you go, hey, come into my room here. I have all these tanks set up and I have 100 tarantulas. Suddenly, that's weird. So I think comparing it to fish tank, going for the point, well, yeah, you know how people keep aquarium fish and they'll get all different types and put them together because there's, you know, they're beautiful. They're gorgeous. People get them. A lot of the fish are bought because of, you know, their temperaments. And that's one of the reasons why we'll buy certain spiders. They're bought because of their appearance. They have beautiful appearances and people want to see them. It may, they can set up the enclosures. You have to explain that aspect of it. So you set up your fish tank, do a lot of nice things. For people that are doing naturalistic enclosures, you can say, hey, look at this is part of it. I get to do this and that and set up all these different enclosures and see all these different types of animals and marvel at their beauty. So when I'm asked and people start looking at me like, how many of these things do you have? And, and I just happened the other day, I was at a, a meeting with some parents and the principal and my director and we're all sitting at the table and the kid says, yeah, Mr. Moran has spiders. And they're like, oh yeah, how many of those things do you have, Tom? And I'm like, eh, I don't know, 150 or so. And the looks on people's faces were priceless. But then I busted into the fact that they don't take a lot of space. They're, for those of us that get into the hobby, there are so many different, I think one thing that does help, and I've, I've used this quite a bit, 
Keep some pictures. Most of us have them anyway. Keep some pictures on your phone. Keep pictures of some of the blue ones on your phone. Those are the keys to getting to people who don't understand why we keep tarantulas. Because one thing I realized after telling people for years that I kept tarantulas, they're picturing your quintessential G. rosea. The, the, I, I love G. rosea, so I don't mean this in a negative way. But they picture just big, brown, hairy spiders. So you're like, I have 150. They picture a room full of big, brown, hairy spiders. They have no idea the colors these things come in. They have no idea the difference between old world, new worlds. They don't know there are boreal tarantulas. They don't know there are tarantulas that will dig burrows and, and you'll see their legs poking out of the front of their burrows. And this is the type of information that sometimes piques their curiosity. But giving a visual, going through, I did this one day and it was like, it, it turned the conversation to Tom Moran as a freak show to having people that were actually asking relevant questions and interested we were at a meeting, same type of situation, and somebody goes, so what do you just like put them in boxes and stare at them? I go, well, have you seen any pictures? Let me show you a couple pictures. And I had an H. Polkropies. I had my P. Metallica. I had an OBT picture. They were in awe. They did not believe these animals really existed. One of them had to basically search P. Solitheria Metallica on her phone to see that there were actually photos of it. I think I had a picture of, well, I think it was a Pamphlobedia species Duran male I had that was just a ridiculous color. It looked like, like sunset, like these weird fuchsia pinks and everything. They couldn't believe these were real animals. And suddenly... It was less about why would you keep so many of these and more about show us more pictures of them. So I think that helps him to get it. So as a if, if you have a super collection, I would encourage you to keep it. It sounds funny. Keep lots of pictures on your phone. Have a little like file or a little folder where they're all together. Because sometimes I go in and there's like pictures of my dogs, pictures of my kids. And I have to flip through this stuff. So now I created like a little thing that I can just show them. My Instagram is a good place to go. And speaking of which, I got to get back on Instagram. But I have a bunch of pictures there that they can go through. But have something that shows some of the colors, even if they're not your spiders. If you have a small collection of say a Fonapelma or Brachypelma species, and they're still gorgeous, but maybe you just have slings or whatnot now. And people are asking, about it have pictures of some of those beautiful species out there to show them that you know picture is worth a thousand words and in that instance i do think it helps so three things right off the bat compare them to aquarium fish that's that and and again you're not going to convince everybody that's an important thing to note there are going to be people that still walk away going you're a weirdo and that's fine and sometimes it's not something that's easy to do when somebody just puts you right on the spot with it i've had situations where i'm standing out in the hallway and somebody's like oh yeah you got a bunch of spiders right and it's with somebody there that's looking at me like i'm crazy and now i've got to quickly as fast as possible try to do my shtick my sales you know pitch to explain to them that no i'm not crazy i take care of them but talking about the fact they don't require a lot of a lot of space, you can have a couple shelves in a room. For those of you that have their own separate room, you're going to get looks, but at least they appreciate that you you keep them in their own room. Um, talk about the fact they're like aquarium fish, that a lot of people will buy different aquarium fish because they want to see, or exotic fish because they want to see the different colors and temperaments and behaviors. It's the same thing with tarantulas. Explaining to them that they're not all the same, that not all spiders just sit there like, you know, I think a lot of people bring up Home Alone a lot. I get that, like the spider in there. Oh, yeah, there's a tarantula in Home Alone, and it just kind of sits there and walks around. Explain to them. We have arboreal ones that will hunt. They'll jump down. They'll leap, which will also scare some people. Explain the fossorial ones. There's different, you know, they all have their own temperaments, their own personalities, their own colorations. Again, whipping out that cell phone and showing photos of them is a great way to get people interested as opposed to just in attack mode and telling us that we're weird. 
personally, when it got out that I was it did the tarantula thing and people were asking questions about it, and I started actually kind of putting together a little list. I sat down, kind of put together some talking points, and these were the ones I kind of base it around, and then I just kind of answer questions as they come. The trick is when people start really asking the questions to try to get them more interested in what you're talking about. If you can't get them interested, they're going to continue to be negative about it and, it and for lack of a better term, attack you over it. When you can get them interested and they start going, wow, this makes a lot of sense now, that's when they open their minds a bit and they're a little more likely to hear your explanation about it. If it's a quick conversation in the hallway, we got to explain yourself. Just explain the fact that tarantulas don't need to eat like other animals do. They eat, you know, you can feed them once a week. You can feed them uh, every two weeks. Some people feed their adults once a month. So that's an important point. I think people picture us sometimes having to feed like just constantly every day, taking out all 100, 150 animals and feeding them all. So explain that aspect, which is what makes them a good pet. I usually lead into that they can be good pet for younger kids because unfortunately kids aren't the best in taking care of animals. And if you have one that only really needs to be fed once a week or once a month even, then they can learn responsibility while having an animal that offers more forgiving husbandry. And that's sometimes a little way to come in and go, oh, wait a minute, so you don't have to feed them all every day. But again, remember, most people do not understand tarantulas to begin with. Any animal that somebody had 150 of is probably going to get some weird looks. And then you throw in the fact that it's tarantulas or, you know, big hairy spiders, and we really get looked at weird. So it's important to recognize you're not going to convince everybody. Friends should be the easier ones. I know my family, my mom is highly arachnophobic. I think my family always thought I was a weirdo from the beginning, so I don't think anything I really do at this point surprises them. But I have had situations where we're at family events and, like, you know, the, the brother-in-laws or something make a comment, oh, house full of spiders, I'd squish them all, and it gets icky. So I, I think with family members, it's a lot easier in that environment. You know, hopefully you're going to be seeing your family members more than just here and there or in a hallway to really kind of do a mini lesson of it and talk about why you keep them. The fact that there are so many different types and varieties and colors. Get out the cell phone. Start passing the cell phone around. Whip out some YouTube videos. I've done that before too, where people have asked questions and you get the cell phone and I'm like, oh, well, you make videos of them? Do you have any videos? And I usually turn down my voice, but then show some pictures of them, you know, me working with them and whatnot. And I think they start to understand it. But remember, take a step back sometimes and just try to think of a time where you weren't involved in the hobby, where you might have looked at somebody and said, if they had said, hey, I have 100 tarantulas in my house and went, what? It's not easy to, it's not difficult to understand why people look at us like we're a little bit strange. So then think about the things that started to bring you over when you started to realize, hey, I might end up having 150 tarantulas. You want to capitalize on those things. So the best advice I can give family members and friends, you should be able to wear down for the most part. Are there going to be people that never get it? Absolutely. But if you have family and friends, you should be able to take them on a tour of your tarantula room, I would assume. Those are the easy ones. Like family and friends, I've even got, you know, relatives that want nothing to do with them to come into the tarantula room and be like, oh, what is this one doing? Oh, there's more than one in here? Thought they eat each other. Take them into the room. Show them what you do. Now, if you're not a hoarder, this should be a positive experience. If you're a hoarder, then you got to get some help. I, I, I'm assuming anybody asking this question is 
has a, a, a well-maintained collection, but show them some of the stuff. Do a feeding for them. Show them the feeding responses. Show them the difference between arboreal and fossorial if you have them, or just a terrestrial tea. The trick is to get them caught up in that, you know, get them away from these are nasty animals, why would you want to keep so many, to all of a sudden starting to understand that they're fascinating and that they're not very difficult to take care of, hence why we can keep so many of them. So hopefully... I gave you some pointers, uh, some good pointers there on how to answer this question. Again, it's not, it's never a perfect situation. It's, I found myself like all I do all the time is talk about tarantulas, answer questions about tarantulas. And I'm not going to lie. I've been in some situations where I've walked away like, oh, you blew it. Like they didn't get what you were saying. They still think you're a weirdo. So it's not always going to be perfect. But on that note, I, you know, I mentioned and joked about the hoarding a moment ago. It is important to make sure you're not becoming a hoarder. And I think for some of us, and that could be a whole topic unto itself, at what point do we become hoarders? Again, if you're becoming stressed out by your collection, if you're finding yourself putting off maintenance, if you've got one that's been in a closure that's too small, but you just can't find the time to get it and weeks are going by and it's molting again, then it's time to downsize. I got to a point, and just to throw my own experience in there, I got up around 170 or, uh, or so, and I had one weekend where something went down and I didn't get to do all the stuff I wanted to do, and oh my lord, was I stressed out because I work with, basically nightly I'm in there with a flashlight. I'm going around filling water dishes, you know, checking on people, seeing who molted. I, I will pull a few out every night and feed. So that way, you know, by the end of the work week, you know, I do like maybe five or 10 or so. That would be 50 done during the course of the work week. And then the weekends where I get most of my work done. So I'm constantly in there messing around. But if I lose my weekend, then that's my big time. Like yesterday morning, I pulled out, I think I told Billy I fed 85 of them or something. And it's fun. I throw on some music, some metal, I'm doing some headbanging, doing some feeding. It's a fun, relaxing thing. That weekend I missed. That next week, I was scrambling, getting home from work, trying to get these done. It became stressful. And then I had to really start thinking, how many more of these do I want? How many more of these can I comfortably take care of and make sure that they're getting the standard of care that they need? Make sure, you know, I don't want to be Tom's big hypocrite. Some guy that's out there talking about tarantulas while I'm not taking care of my own. I couldn't live with that. I'd, I'd stop making the videos and I'd sell a bunch of these things off. And I don't ever want to get to the point where I burn out from it because, again, a lot of my life now is spent either making videos about, making podcasts about, or talking about tarantulas tarantulas and giving advice on how to keep them. And I need to be able to sleep at night knowing that I'm doing the right thing by mine. So I think we all get to that point where we explode. Uh, I, again, I talked to people, I, it was, I think end of last year, somebody told me they started off with one, picked up a couple and they were up to 250. And the guy said, I, I actually hit panic mode the other day where I realized I had gone too far. And that's not, I don't want to say it's a good thing per se, but it is good to realize when you've got to a point where there are too many. I, I love hearing people say, you know, people post their pictures on the on the groups and the forums and people are like, oh, I need to get that. I need to get that. And every once in a while, somebody will come on. Yep, I'm on a holding pattern. Got to figure out what we're doing here. Maybe get rid of some of these guys in my collection. That's good because bottom line, the trick is to you, you get some, you get some slings. Those aren't taking up a lot of space. But what happens is those slings grow up. Next thing you know it, you need more space. For those of us who have rooms that we can devote to it, it's easy. For those of us who don't, that's a little more tricky. And then what will end up happening is you'll get to a point where you're just like, you know what, I have a few too many, and then it's time to downsize a little bit. I'm giving serious thought to doing some downsizing in the future only because my thing right now is to write care sheets on them. I'd love to get some more slings. I've had an order at Fear Not sitting there for several months now waiting to ship 
because I'm still doing around, uh, my tarantula room and redoing it and trying to make sure I have enough space and enough time to get these done right. And there may be a point where I find that, you know what, I've grown a lot of these things up as attached as I am to them. I may just pick some that I really want to hold on to and maybe give some away or sell some to make some room for new ones so I can continue to do husbandry videos and articles and podcasts on new species. So that's something I'm wrestling with myself. So long story short, when people ask, the trick is to get them interested. Don't worry so much about the battle as as you do trying to get them to realize why you would keep them in the first place. That's the biggest obstacle I've found to overcome. You throw any animal in there that you're keeping 150 of, people are going to look at you weird, but spiders really throw it off. So try to get them interested in it. Hit those points. You know They're like fish. You can keep a bunch of them. Uh, you know, start talking about the fact they are kept in separate cages. They don't take a lot to work, you know, to take care of. They, you don't have to feed them as often. All those good things and try to loop them in. And then don't not beat yourself up when, or don't beat yourself up when you inevitably run into that one person or those couple people that just don't really care what you have to say, that they're just going to have their opinion. Regardless, they're going to say, I don't, the big one is, I don't understand why anybody would need 150 transfers. Well, no kidding. I don't understand why a grown man would want to buy transformers, yet I do it. I don't understand why anybody would need thousands of cds or movies but here we are it's it's if you don't like it and it's not your thing that's fine and you just kind of politely go oh well i understand that it's not for you then but a lot of people do and then you can't you know underestimate the fact they are addictive and explain that a lot of people in the hobby like to collect different species it is it's collecting it's not it's why i hesitate sometimes with the whole pet aspect of it are they animals are they technically pets yes and that could be again a, a whole topic unto itself. Yeah, they, they're technically pets. I've seen people that literally, they love their tarantulas. I saw a video the other day of a girl kissing one. Made me itch just looking at it, but whatever. But I think there is the collection aspect of it. And anybody that has collected anything in their life, you, you try to get these other species. A lot of people stick to certain, uh, you know, a certain genus. Some people stick to like, I only want African old worlds or quote unquote baboon species. I, I collect arboreals, but there is that collection aspect to it, which I haven't mentioned previously in this podcast. So let's also throw that in the fact that a lot of people that get into tarantulas, it does entice that part of you that likes to collect things. So it's not so much of a horde. You got to explain the difference of a horde is somebody that isn't taking care of them, that isn't doing what they need. You know, they aren't getting the care that they need. Where in a collection, they should, it should be well-maintained. It should be a source of, you know, comfort and it should relieve your anxiety, not cause anxiety. And the fact that a collection, you're going to be feeding them, caring for them, doing all the things they need to do. They're going to get that level of care that they should get. So, that's my best explanation for that one. Again, I, I agonize over this one for quite a while now. Um, Chris, I really, I, just to let you know, this was the one I was going to handle first. I think you were one of the first people to chime in. And I'm like, this is a great topic, but then I really wanted to think about it. And as luck would have it, I've gotten into a few of these conversations recently. I have the added fact that I do a lot of education stuff with my tarantulas, so I try to explain to people that I do husbandry videos, I talk about their care, I talk about the differences in care between species, so it kind of behooves me to have several different species that I can talk about, like if there was... I don't think there could be Tom's Big Spiders if I only kept 10 spiders. It would just be me going over the same basic care. That's why I go out and buy some obscure species so I can do this stuff. But for people that don't have the YouTube channel that aren't doing this kind of stuff, those would be the talking points I would go around. And please share your stories. I don't, I'm not the 
be all end all as far as knowledge on these things. Obviously, I've dealt with it for a while myself and I have some ideas of what works for me and I have my go-to. But for those of you out there listening right now that have gone through this, what's worked for you? you know, do you whip out the pictures? Do you end up talking about the care? What What do you do to try to convince people? Because I think what comes out of these podcasts sometimes, the podcast itself just – ends up being like the the starting talking point and then sometimes the comments really turn out to have all the good information and I have you know I have my stuff to offer but you guys all do too and you can't discount that so please chime in in the comment section let me know what you guys think what have you, have you dealt with this before what are some of the things that you've used to kind of break down that argument and explain to people why we'd be crazy enough to keep hundreds of hairy spiders all right well as it is I've run over my allotted time for my podcast last week so I, get an, I had to buy an extra hour, so we might as well keep this one going a little bit longer so we can sap up as much of that hour and not waste it. So let's go on to another one. We have one by Brittany Safran. Brittany, if I mispronounce, again, I feel like I'm killing names today. I'm guessing that's probably Polish, and I tend to butcher the Polish name, so my apologies if I got it wrong. But I'm going to tackle your first question today, and the other one I'm still waiting to hear back from a couple people on, so we'll wait through a future podcast for that one. But Brittany asks, new tarantula keeper here, but I'm interested to know more about the nutritional value of various feeders for tarantulas. In the herp world, we are always told to add calcium to some insects like crickets or not to feed some feeders due to the ratio of their nutrient contents. Does this matter in the tarantula world? In regards to nutritional value, should we be picky about which feeders we choose? What role does the species of tarantula play in the nutritional value of some feeders? Is it possible that some of our captive raised tarantulas are missing some important nutrients needed for healthy molting or reproduction? What is known? Would it help if tarantula keepers kept a log of the foods they feed and, when problems arise, look for patterns among the community for that species that may have led to the problem? Brittany, awesome question. Um, one I'm afraid I'm going to be ill-equipped to answer only because there really isn't a lot out there on tarantula nutrition. In fact, a lot of the stuff you do find that kind of comments on tarantula nutrition specifically is the old stuff about the calcium in 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 invertebrates, not invertebrates, invertebrate animals like mice and lizards and stuff can cause molting problems with tarantulas because it's too much calcium, which is kind of ludicrous because we have to look at what their diet would consist of in the wild. Um, do we know, and now I'm not, I am not one that's able to quote the fat and protein contents of the various feeder insects. I know people that can do that. Maybe somebody will throw it up here. I don't look at that. I will say that when I first started, I was in the herb hobby, so I do know about you know using the calcium dust for stuff, making sure they got the right calcium things there. But that isn't a thing with tarantulas. I tell people not to dip them in calcium. As far as I know, no, they do not require extra calcium like a reptile would. So do not dust. I can say that pretty much right across the bat. I don't gut load my crickets per se. I feed them fresh fresh produce and, and grains and things of that nature. Uh, same thing with my roaches. I don't gut load those, so to speak. I don't dip them in calcium powder. You don't have to do that with the tarantula hobby. So you can take that part of the herp hobby and just throw it right out the window. As far as what they're, you know... The nutrient contents, again, people can throw that up there, but it doesn't, I'm going to say this, it doesn't at the moment seem to matter. People have raised healthy tarantulas with no issues feeding them crickets their entire lives for decades. Same thing for roaches. Um, But 
on the flip side of that, we don't know a heck of a lot about them. And that's a big thing reading into your next question, which is about veterinarians. And we will get to that, I promise, but not this one, unfortunately. We don't know a lot about what makes them work. We don't know a lot about their nutrition needs. I mean, even now, look, at we've kept dogs for how many years and we're still, we just, everybody just went to this grain-free diet. And now my vet's telling me the grain-free diet is not a good thing. If you're buying grain-free food, put some oatmeal in there because it's not good for them, whatever. It's like, we're not even sure what to feed our dogs that we've been keeping for hundreds of years. And tarantulas are relatively new in terms of animals that we keep as pets, as humans. And there's not a lot out there veterinary care. There's not people out there studying their diets. So my take on this is I've always tried to mix things up a bit. So I will use crickets. I mean, right now what I'm using is I have crickets. I have superworms. I have red runner roaches. I have dubia roaches. And I even have some hissers, which I've heard arguments that the hissers aren't good for them. I'm Again, I, I look for compelling information on them, and I don't get a lot except people come up with sometimes wives' tales and stuff. So if somebody has something that they know that's scientifically proven of why they shouldn't feed something to a certain animal, please let us know. I know a while back I used to do roach chow for my dubia, and I would mix in some fish food to add a little bit of protein to the roach chow. So it would be like cornmeal, um, oats, just regular oats, and some fish flakes, and I would grind it all up into like a mash and feed them that. And somebody came on and said I was going to kill my tarantulas because the protein, when the roaches digest the extra proteins, it turns into acid in their bodies, and when the tarantulas eat the feeders then that acid impacts them and can hurt them and it was this whole big hoopla so i just cut down the amount of protein that was in there somebody else came in afterwards and said that's not true they didn't see it affecting it but the problem is we don't know we're not sure so Brittany, a you don't have to use calcium i know that for a fact b i always like to encourage people to try different things like if you're feeding the crickets for a while mix it up a little bit throw in some mealworms in there, try some roaches. That way you're kind of giving them, they all have different fat and protein content. It, it, it can be analyzed. People have the information out there. Again, I don't have it. But that way you're kind of cycling it around, giving them a little choice of what to get. So I do think that it, you bring up a great point that wild caught, basically we have our go-to feeders. And although they're insects and they should work well, that's not necessarily what these things would be eating in the wild. And that is that is a thought that there could be some concern there. That could be causing some some of the problems that we're seeing. I mean, one of the biggest issues you can have with tarantulas or one of the most precarious times in tarantulas' lives are when they molt. We all live in fear of a bad molt, a wet molt. We don't know exactly what causes that. So you bring up a valid point that it could be feeders. Who knows? But I will say... It's one of those things where you look at what people have traditionally fed their tarantulas over the years and how many people have grown them from slings all the way to the adults and using the same things. It doesn't seem to be an issue with the food right now, but who knows? Who, who knows if it affects different species differently? You bring up a point between, you know, is there something different between a fossorial diet and an arboreal tarantula diet? I'm guessing so. I've talked about several times my issue with P. muticus and the fact that they, some of the specimens, especially the smaller ones, will bury themselves completely and won't come up to eat. And the general consensus is that when they dig in the wild, they dig so deeply that there are prey items like, uh, you know, digging cr burrowing crickets and things of that nature that are grubs that are underground that they can eat. So their diet might consist of different things and say the arboreal tarantula that's up catching flying insects and occasionally a bird or whatnot. So 
we the problem is we don't know Brittany, and that's one of the the biggest issues I have. I won't say big issue I have with the hobby, but one of the things that bothers me is that when something gets ill or something goes wrong, and I've, I've mentioned this many times, we don't know enough about them to really figure out what could be causing it. It's not like you know my dog gets sick. You know, my broody was limping the other day and we felt his ankle, his ankle was swollen, like either he sprained his ankle or fractured something, or maybe he has arthritis. So we bring him to the vet, years of medical care with dogs, they threw him on the x-ray machine, he didn't like it, and they found out it was arthritis. And then we got him medication, he's fine. Spider, we're not going to know until it curls up or we find it dead. And that's the part about this hobby that can be difficult for some people is that there is there are a lot of questions left a lot of times when these things die. The other day I went to my tarantula room. I have two sea darlingi that I've been raising. One of them was a big beautiful female that's been doing great, eating well. She's got water. She's got a little moist spot in her substrate. Well, I went in to check on her and she was flattened out. She looked like she was just sitting there and I went to add a little water to the water dish. She didn't move. Lo and behold, she was dead. Just died, literally sitting there like a normal spider would sit. I have no idea what's wrong. The other one's doing just fine, but it's heartbreaking. So we don't know a lot about them. Vets don't know a lot about them. Short answer to your next question that we'll cover after I talk to a couple people. And that's one of the big issues in the hobby. But as far as nutrition, to just really lay it out there, there doesn't seem to be a magic, you know, type of feeder you can use. People across the across the world use different things with success. So my trick is just if you're getting into the hobby, you're new into the hobby, mix it up a bit. Crickets, roaches, mealworms, I do it with all mine. I mix it up every once in a while. I'll feed crickets for a lot. Then I'll go off crickets for a couple weeks, feed some roaches, and then I throw in some mealworms. The other day I broke out the superworms for the first time in a while. Mix it up a bit so that way you're giving them different concentrations of fat and protein and you're ensuring they get kind of a varied diet. Because that's one thing you can say is that when they're in our collections, they're not getting the varied diet they probably would outside. They're not getting, you know, the weather and the storms and the prey, uh, the you know, predation from other animals. Those are good things, but they're not getting that variety that they would get in the wild. And that's, you know, Brittany, you bring up a really good point. Perhaps that variety creates stronger, healthier spiders, just like human diets. Our variety, we're not supposed to just eat steak every day. We're not supposed to just eat potatoes every day. So that's a very good point. And, and unfortunately, we don't know. And I think it would be a cool idea to have people jot down what they're feeding because I know I've heard that, you know, recently using dubia, somebody told me they stopped using dubia because they thought it was causing molting problems in some of their larger tarantulas. That would be something that we could as a hobby track. So yeah, maybe there would be a good idea to start writing stuff down. I've never thought about it. It would be fairly easy to do because I usually go from one thing to another. Um, but that could be a neat idea if people want to do it. And uh, could again, any information we can get on these guys right now is valuable. So anything anybody is able to write down, hey, I fed them crickets their entire lives and a bunch of them are dying as adults and having molting problems, that could be something we look at. We don't know. But uh, great question. Unfortunately, sorry, I don't have a, a definitive answer for you except for the fact that I wouldn't really worry too much about it. It's not like snakes. we got to have certain vitamins in there. But I do think giving them a variety is a, a prudent thing to do. All right, so that should about do it for this one. We sapped up a lot of that extra hour there. Good, at least I'm getting my money's worth. Maybe I'll do a short little one to go along with it. As always, thanks so much to everybody that uh, took their time to put questions in there. I got to go back and respond to a bunch of Facebook comments. I'm so behind. I've, I've caught up with my email and I've caught up with my 
YouTube comments, but now I'm behind on Facebook, and that tends to be the last thing I get to, so I apologize, but please know I do read everything. I try to throw a heart in there or something if I don't get a chance to read it. Sometimes I'm at school just going through them on my phone quickly, and I can't really respond to them all. So thank you all that uh, that took the time to put questions out there. Again, thanks to all who take the time to listen. I hit a huge benchmark last week as far as the number of listeners, which I was very excited about. I mean, again, when I started this thing, I really didn't think anybody was going to listen. I thought it would piddle out and it would probably stop doing them. And lo and behold, it's actually found an audience. I had a couple other people the other day that found my YouTube page once again from the podcast, which is the opposite of the way it was before. So again, I really do appreciate people that take the time. It blows my mind a bit that people enjoy listening to me ramble on for, you know, 35, 45 minutes on spiders, but I do appreciate it. So that'll do it for this one. As always, you can feel free to check me out on tomsbigspiders.com. You can also find my YouTube page, which is under Tom Moran or Tom's Big Spiders, either or. That's actually been experiencing pretty good growth lately, which has been cool. Hopefully it doesn't grow too, too much because it's tough to keep up with sometimes, but uh, doing great over there. So again, if you want to see some of the spiders that I'm talking about, feel free to join me over on the YouTube page because then you can see some pictures to go with my voice. So anyway, thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you guys all next time.